Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Hello and welcome back to Innovation Capital presented by PatSnap. We hope everyone had an enjoyable and relaxing break over the holidays and are looking forward to this next year. I can't think of a better guest to kickstart our first podcast of 2021 than who we have joining us today. Scott Amex is a true visionary and out-of-the-box thinker. He is a top innovation keynote speaker, thought leader, investment expert, podcast host, best-selling author. The list just keeps going on and on. Scott is here today to talk to Ray and talk to us about a phenomenon that has been gathering steam over the last few years, and that is the rise of the R&D research-focused CEO. So without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode with Scott. Enjoy. Well, Scott, welcome to Innovation Capital. I just want to say uh, our team and, and myself have been pumped about today's episode. I've, I've had the opportunity to research your achievements and, and your focus online. So segueing into a professional setting, how did you end up in the wonderful world of venture investing? What was your journey there and your road to, to that world? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's in terms of both kind of uh, insight as well as uh, maybe some you know lessons learned for listeners is that um, you know, <laughs> uh, kind of transitioning from personal to professional is, uh, I think for majority of my career, I've tried to be a generalist and, and I think part of it is because, you know, I have a certain mind that is versatile, but gets bored very easily. So I don't like to focus on any one topic too long because it really fatigues me in the sense of not intellectual fatigue, but boredom. Uh, so I've always kind of uh, had this ability to cover many different domains and topics uh, and readily be able to go deep into any topic and just found that kind of research process very, very intuitive for me. But with that said, I think the generalist approach, I think, you know, has been problematic in the past because, you know, most people value specialization. And I think uh, after my last uh, corporate gig as a VP and, and, and GM of a publicly traded company, uh, I realized that I needed to change something about my approach. Um, and so going back to my earlier point about this notion of character development and personal development is that in order for me to achieve the intended lifetime goals that I have, I have to not only invest in myself, but I have to be willing to transform myself. And that includes innovating myself. So I spent, I would say the last seven years really reinventing myself. So part of the way I did that was, and I remember vividly in Silicon Valley, sitting in the auditorium of this major industry conference, listening to the speakers and thinking to myself, why are they up there? Why are they speaking about something? And why are they adding so little value to the overall dialogue at hand? And, you know, I was a little bit, I suppose, cocky, but thinking that, you know, I should be up there. Uh, of course, you know, I wasn't really anybody uh, worth, uh, you know, inviting to the, the keynote podium. But 
I work my way and I, over time, I think I've given 300 or more speeches um, throughout the world and learned to go from being behind the curtain to forcing myself to come out to be the, at the forefront and sharing the kinds of things that I would never have shared. I mean, if you met me, let's say, not even 10 years ago, uh, you wouldn't have been able to find me on LinkedIn because I would not list my last name. I w- I'm a highly private person and I'm very introverted. And I prefer not to be out in public um, and, and certainly share anything around my, my personal self. So I had to really force myself into an incredible degree of discomfort. Uh, and in that process, one of the things that I talk about uh, that's a very important passion of mine is market fits. And I think this is very much in line with uh, Y Combinator and some of the others that have similar thesis, uh, is that market fit notion isn't just for uh, startups or corporations or products. Market fit also is for individuals. So the last you know, five, seven years has been a journey for me to figure out market fit in terms of how does the market view me? Where do they see the greatest value? And I think you know, over time, what I saw, whether it was from GLG or other consulting gigs, was that they perceived me as somebody who really knew how to do due diligence. Um, if you put me on any type of VC panel, again, I'm... I'm a little bit trying to be as diplomatic as possible, but I would generally ask very relevant questions and get to the heart of it much quicker than most. Again, it, it's not a reflection of my intellect, but my ability to be able to actually laser focus on what actually matters the most and be able to sift through the facade and the scientific babble that sometimes that these founders will actually present. So I know exactly what I need to laser focus on and why or why why they will be successful and why they won't be successful. When you initially kind of were talking about the overview of your investment thesis, you went back to the first principles of how we're biologically designed in that short-term fight or flight mode. It just When you said that, it just reminded me of so many people that I've met in my life and sometimes how I personally think, but we're biologically wired that way but there's a few special people on planet earth right now who seem not to be wired that way. Uh, and here at Patstack, we we're very much fascinated with the rise of the pure play R and D and innovation, innovation facing CEO. So folks who are not wired in that fight or flight, let's panic and just think about what's happening in the next three months, the next quarter or the next year. So folks like, Elon Musk at Tesla, obviously that's a very obvious one, but also we love folks like Jack Dorsey at Twitter, in particular Square, what he's doing in the fintech space, and also at NVIDIA at Jensen Hung and, and what he's hopefully, fingers crossed, if it goes through the huge deal with, with ARM, that will revolutionize that end-to-end GPU-to-edge computing cycle to enable smart cities and a lot of the themes that you're talking about. Those three trailblazers, we are just in awe of here because they seem to not be hardwired in that fight or flight, short-term caveman fashion. They're thinking 10, 20, 50 years out. So do you see that? So my question is, do you see that as a preeminent trend where we will see more folks like Jack, Elon, and Jensen kind of being selected by boards or being backed by investors who are the folks who think into the future and very much are what we call 
innovation R&D facing founders and CEOs? Do you see that that trend continue to play out? Yeah, so let me, uh, actually, I'm going to back up a little bit and just put this in the right context. Um, for those that are listening, uh, certainly your constituency are going to be you know, full in support of this thesis, but for those that are not, may find uh, a, you know, find that um, going down this path may, may be somewhat biased as well. But let, let me uh, kind of set this in the context, proper context. You know, when, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, I had to use a rotary phone. And the rotary phone also was attached, you know, on the wall. So you stretch this thing out. And I remember I uh, actually um, showed a picture of, of a rotary phone with, a, you know, <laughs> with a wire um, extension cord. And um, my daughter said, what in the world is that? And why, did, why, is, the, why is the wire so long? Um, similarly, you know, when we traveled to uh, London and they saw some of the you know, the phone booth, they were like, what in the world is the phone booth for? Is it to take your phone and do selfies in there? But I remember uh, phone booths were in every street corner. And the cars that I learned to drive initially were manual. You had sticks that you had to use to shift gears. And if I wanted to buy music, I had to go to a physical music store. If I wanted to watch a movie, I had to go to a video rental store to rent VHS or whatever the format was at that point. And if I want to buy clothes, I would have to go to a retail store or the mall. And then the robot, the notion of a robot back then in my days was a wind-up toy that waddled on the ground after you wind it up, right? Many of the things that I'm talking about does not exist anymore. The rapid change uh, caused by the convergence of exponential technologies is accelerating the life cycle of innovation. I remember when I was um, consulting to uh, Samson. And there was a period of panic about, I would say about maybe three, four years ago when they saw the cash cow on their smartphones uh, being dis decimated because people were not either upgrading or they were moving on to something else. Uh, so what we're seeing is that the, 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 the calculus, um, uh, what we anticipate from the profit maximization of a particular product launch isn't as long as it used to be, like the way semiconductors and eventual you know, PCs and so forth were. The cycles are getting shorter and shorter. And, and what we're finding out is that the only thing that is constant is change itself. Um, and part of the reason, I think, and this is coming back to your question, is the reason for innovation, the reason for R&D in particular, is no longer just a line item within an organization, but it is of survival. So I think, you know, we don't have to go into too much detail about the capital destruction that we've seen from some of the industries that I alluded to. Uh, we see empty retail, mall spaces, uh, billions of capital destruction in terms of uh, institutional holders that were holding their debt financing, or the real estate property owners and the investors and the REITs that, you know, used to house those types of businesses. So we're talking about real change. So innovation is now has to be at the forefront for survival and growth. Otherwise, um, you're going to become obsolete. I mean, that's and the obsolete obsolescence cycle isn't 10, 20 years, but it could be three years or less. Um, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, you know, I wrote an article on the Forbes and I talked about how most of the focus on innovation is on the ability to innovate and execute. 
but there's this one area that is often overlooked, which is the CEO role uh, in terms of catalyst for innovation. And I talk about uh, one or two research that points to the fact that the CEO role actually has statistically significant influence on a company's innovation and performance through the R&D investments. And then moreover, it, the findings uh, indicates that when there is, in fact, proper full support from the board of directors, shareholders, and investors, uh, in conjunction with the right characteristics and skill of that CEO, then you have a really, really uh, forward-looking indicator for long-term company success and shareholder value. That's okay. what we're talking about. And fundamentally, and that's why that I've agreed to be on this interview, because it is the right approach. It is not always the right approach for every single case, but it is definitely from a trend. Um, now, with that said, of course, oftentimes, and this is a case that we see with many of our startups, is that many of them have PhDs uh, or postdoc from the Ivy League, usual MIT, Stanford, Harvard, Caltech, and, and Oxford, and so forth. Uh, so they're brilliant. They're brilliant, but they're not always uh, the best storyteller or they can't quite translate that. So um, either they can be transformed into a true leadership oriented CEO and or they need to be coupled with the COO and other CXOs that can help support that surround sound from an organizational leadership point of view. OK, so it's interesting you talk about that storyteller DNA strand in kind of deep tech startups. But in a nutshell, say, if you were to summarize this in 60 seconds, what are the key elements you look for in, in a founder CEO in the types of investments that you make at your fund? And does that R&D facing DNA play a, a huge part of your investment thesis where they're technically gifted, but they also have to be great storytellers? So in 60 seconds, how what are the key kind of dimensions you look for when you're placing a bet on an early stage entrepreneur? So I think we are contrarians in the sense that I think many VCs tend to prefer low CapEx, low OpEx. You know, they like the SaaS, they like the FinTech. Um, we're somewhat uh, contrarians in the sense that we think that some innovation, especially the ones that's going to really have a long-term impact, needs patient capital and needs the right deep tech to properly solve it. I think a good example of this is the is the engine that spun out of MIT, for instance. Uh, their thesis and their approach, I think, very closely aligns with our philosophy as well. So the kinds of startups that we tend to look for and the founders that we look for have to have incredible, incredibly deep domain expertise. Uh, ideally, we like for them to be one of the 10 most prominent, most referenced, most cited uh, researchers, on, you know, entrepreneurs, academic, in their domain, in their subfield. And they need to have an incredible track record, um, whether it's academic and publishing, whether it's research or entrepreneurial exits, they need to have that track record. And then the last piece that we look for is, again, we know this is where we also need to come in and help as well, is the storytelling. Uh, uh, you know, I think there are so many great technical solutions but if not framed properly, just will never get anywhere because it's never understood. And I think many um, PhDs and postdocs don't understand that people don't really buy feature sets. They, they don't buy pure capabilities. People are buying uh, really whole stories or entire systems 
or platform. So, you know, being able to properly tell that story. And when I say properly tell that story, sometimes it's not just a only singular story. Uh, certainly you have an umbrella story from a brand architecture, but being able to, uh, you know, customize uh, and tailor that story depending on the various verticals that you're attacking as well as the different stakeholders that you're speaking with. It's a very important piece, and that's some, something that I think Astro Perkins works very hard with uh, our portfolio startups. Brilliant. And in terms of, so it looks like your, your fund reminds me of, that there's a group called Lux Capital, yes. uh, Josh Wolf, where he does some, he, Josh is a fascinating guy and is very much in for the long term. I think you have uh, Chamath at Social Capital, who's now more keen on long-term capital and, and, and being patient, patient and, and focusing on education, healthcare, really deep first principles orientated problems. So, yeah, that cohort of investment thematic is very much close to our heart here at Patsnap because we, we serve a lot of the, the companies and the ecosystem who try to work that way. Do you see that spreading where groups like yours, Josh at Lux, Chamath now with his long-term view investing in kind of healthcare education with a long-term time horizon, do you see that increasing in the next two, three years where other, other funds will start deploying that type of investment strategy? So I think what I would say is, uh, you know, certainly my perspective is going to be one outlier uh, out of many and certainly um, isn't going to fall within the mean. What I would say is that uh, I don't necessarily see that as being becoming a broad-based theme. Um, and there are many reasons. So to give you a, uh, a concrete example around this is uh, the rise of SPEC. SPEC as a vehicle uh, has been around for, for several decades. It has gone a facelift and it's becoming become much more popularized through some of the features and some of the regulatory aspects. However, what it's showing uh, is an indication, a manifestation of the fact that the investors are, are getting tired uh, and waiting is not the game that they like. In other words, more and more of these unicorns, for instance, are staying private longer. Uh, and, and these investors are anxious to find liquidity, uh, to be able to put their money to work. Uh, to quote one family office, for example, uh, they have one business that's doing active trading, and they don't want to take any type of resources away from that. So they're looking to the other buckets and trying to figure out how to churn, meaning uh, accelerate, accelerate the investment to liquidity faster and faster so that it can actually sustain itself. So they'd rather forego larger multiples or X, multiple in terms of exits, for quicker cash in return. So spec is, a, is essentially one of those uh, symptomatic uh, manifestation of what the investor climate is saying. Is they're saying, I want to see a way to be able to actually have an exit. And by having these vehicles go public where I can actually exit out, great. Uh, and really it gives them the option of two things, right? So within a finite period, let's say two years, that team is expected to acquire um, into a large uh, growth company. And then once it gets merged, um, then basically the, 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 the investors, um, including those that are, that are holding the pipe, for instance, will 
both have the ability to uh, have short-term liquidity, but also if they choose to convert over and hold on to the long-term as the, the, you know, the parent company or the entity uh, continues from a, from a public uh, life cycle. So, okay. so the, the, the challenge that, that, that the startups in the space that you're in is they're always going to be caught in difficult spots. And space and some of the, uh, the life sciences and biotech that we cover really is, is, a, is a good indication of that, is that the traditional VC model is pro- highly problematic in terms of supporting true patient capital. Because of the fund structure, even though their fund duration may be 8 to 10 years, they really have to, for our purposes, need to have exits within the next three to five years. And, and realistically, for transformational technologies and solutions, three to five years may not make sense. So in other words, we're certainly not going to you know, solve some of these uh, uh, you know, bacterial aspects, including some of the innovations around CRISPR gene editing or, or the kinds of uh, you know, new single-cell um, diagnostics and therapies getting to a certain scale, for instance. We're not going to see this in necessarily three to five years before it becomes fully mature. So... Uh, the you know this is really where I think we're trying to come in with a creative solution, and one of the things that we're recognizing is that the VC vehicle and the approach isn't the solution to all things. And one of the things that we've really been working hard is to build our family office network. As a matter of okay. fact, in, in January we we're kicking off uh, something called Astro Perkins Private, um, which is going to be a series of private, very exclusive, invitation by only conversations where we bring family offices and one or two subject matter experts and really deeply examine it uh, from a thought leadership point of view. So that's the kind of series that we're starting off. And we think that uh, that's a probably a reasonable blend, blended approach that makes, makes it possible. So I'll give you one more example just to hit this all the way to home run is that there is a company called uh, Marvel Fusion out of Germany. Uh, they're working on a new approach to laser uh, laser approach to nuclear fusion. And unlike a lot of the fusion-oriented projects that are out there that are really looking for very, very small incremental wins, uh, this team, including one of the Nobel laureate uh, winners in physics, they are looking for commercialization sooner than later. They could not find funding from the traditional VC model. And, and they were fortunate enough to find a single private family office that were willing to support them with $100 million funding. That's a kind of... That's the kind of creative thinking and solutions and approach that we're taking. Yes, and so, so that's a great example you share there. One that we've closely observed, and I think it was literally last week. And does this is this another kind of US example at the moment? So you had QuantumScape, um, who are doing some amazing work in the EV and battery space, deep tech play. They kind of they've got past the science now and virus back their public. So is that another example uh, which listeners can look at and observe as a reference to the trend you just described there, Scott? Yes, I would I would say so. Yeah. And what, what, what are your thoughts on, are you going to, are we going to see a lot more of this? Because this is fascinating because I think then this opens up a vehicle to maybe get to that Holy grail where you could just have, retail investors who are passionate about technology and innovation and 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 are willing to be patient and long term so do you think this platform and examples like quantum scape and probably a couple of others which will probably come through the pipe 
2021, we'll, we'll really expand where maybe in three, four years, we'll see 50, 60 examples like QuantumScape. Do you see that really playing out in the next couple of years? Well, I think uh, what I what I would say is, if I had to opine and keep in mind that my primary focus is on is in, is in spec, but from what I understand firsthand, um, is that it is getting to a point of uh, not only mature maturization but uh, overabundance in terms of supply. So, uh, you know, I think what we're seeing is that the specs that are going out there are trading below ten ten dollars a share. And they're highly compromised, and it creates a lot of lot of ch- economic challenges and potential for insolvencies uh, for those that are backing it. And certainly, not all specs come with a, a steady pipe or, or you know steadfast long term investors that are fully committed, regardless of volatility in the marketplace. Which means that many are also very subject to those that are short selling and speculators that are looking to make money off of high high volume high-speed type of trading type of an approach. So spec is becoming, uh, from a go-to-market, problematic in many ways. And certainly it is not a guarantee uh, for sure. Uh, rather, it is one of many tools to consider. Uh, but again, we've kind of gone past the tipping points. And unless uh, you're truly exceptional, which again, these days, it's, you know, it's hard to stand out. It's going to be very difficult to stay afloat and make it viable. Now, with that said, spec as a tool and a vehicle will continue to be sustained and used. You just start to see a lot less. And this, I think, not a perfect analogy, but is somewhat similar to the hype during the initial coin offering uh, that had to eventually become more securitized. And we started to see a lot more rigor uh, from an SEC and FINRA perspective. Makes sense. And, and, and spinning off slightly, because you, you touched upon this, Scott, earlier in our conversation today where you looked at, you mentioned decentralization. So another uh, bellwether moment we've observed this year here at PatSnap and, and actually do serve at clients in that ecosystem is the world of, of blockchain, digital assets, just the crypto market. And obviously we've seen Bitcoin and Ethereum have spectacular growth since January and just Central bank, central bank digital currencies being talked about openly for the first time in history. You've got large groups like BlackRock who are comfortable talking about Bitcoin. Obviously, you had a, a huge moment with Michael Saylor deploying nearly $400 million off his corporate treasury into Bitcoin, Jack Dorsey at $50 million. So we're seeing all of these interesting moments really have a lot of eyeballs now on, on this whole kind of digital asset space. So just what's your thesis on this whole blockchain movement, digital assets and trailblazers like Vitalik Buterin of Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0 going live December the 1st? Like, do you see this as a, a compelling space, like which will really play out in the next five, six, six years? What, what, what's your opinion on on on? this rapid kind of development in the last 12 to 18 months in terms of just velocity? Well, I think uh, first, firstly, as a disclaimer, I've uh, kind of moved away from fintech to a great extent to really focus on uh, deep tech. Um, you know, even though I was an early pioneer robo-advisor back in the early 2000s, uh, so I do have you know reasonable back, background on it. 
Um, I think what we've seen, uh, again, this is me opining only, is that mm-hmm. what we've seen is that uh, we finally started to cross over from kind of the retail exuberance to institutional. The fact that Goldman Sachs and others have dedicated desk, and, and that's really what we're seeing is the the, the different vehicles uh, that are coming in that's actually really kind of pushing up some of the volume aspects and, and being done in a way that's hopefully a little bit more systematic than what's currently blamed in media uh, with the Robinhood, um, you know, retail, retail uh, um, traders. Um, so I think, I think from a asset class, it's here to stay definitively. Um, but I think I do want to separate the speculative aspect from the underlying thesis around decentralization. Um, so from a speculation, I'm not going to comment. But on the decentralized, you know, the thesis of what blockchain is supposed to support, uh, it is it is very sound. Um, now, is it truly being implemented that way? It's difficult because for all purposes, it's a decentralized paradigm that still has to exist in a centralized cloud environment and install type of a model. So it's highly problematic and it's subject to lots of vulnerabilities. Uh, so we're still working through scalability and accessibility and all the things that's that others are trying to work through. But blockchain definitely, I think, um, has an important component in the exponential uh, for technologies, especially around those that are looking to have that immunity um, and, and the kind of privacy aspects as well. Um, there's one startup that we that I spoke with. Uh, it's kind of escaping me. They're, they're actual um, standard, but they also have phys- physical um, manifestation, which is nice. Uh, they actually allow for people to opt in to allow for their mobile devices and their hubs to become hotspots. Uh, and then they create this mesh uh, and then allow for others to connect to it. And I think they're the largest in the network, for instance. So we like it when it becomes more, I would say, real um, real projects that people can use versus those that are just purely for speculative purposes. Interesting. So this has been mooted, I think. I think it would have been, um, oh, his name slips my mind, but it's, it, it's I think it's Tyson DeGrasse, um, who's a, uh, if, I'm, if I know the name correctly, uh, please correct me if I've got it wrong, Scott. But he talks about... <laughs> I think this is one that Joe Rogan, he was saying mm-hmm. the first trillionaire will be the entrepreneur who can nail kind of mining uh, an asteroid and bringing back <laughs> some of those highly valuable minerals, metals back to Earth. So, yeah, I, I do hear people talking about this. So so looking at more near term in the next, say, call it 10 to 12 years, what should we be keeping an eye on in terms of you mentioned that new paradigm of the space economy and and if companies can execute their valuations will be at another dimension compared to now? Is there any low hanging fruit which the audience can get excited about or just keep a gentle eye on? Well, I think um, you know going back to our discussion around spec, uh, you will start to see more spec. Um, I can share some other information because it might be private. Uh, but expect uh, other public vehicles to go out next year as well. That's going to help facilitate some of the um, vertical integration of some of these capabilities within space. So we're going to start to see a lot of interesting things that, um, you know, whether you're retail, whether you're institutional or family offices, can really start to sink your teeth in. And some some of these opportunities don't necessarily have to be 10, 20 years out. Uh, many of these startups that we're we're working with are generating, you know, anywhere from three, five million to upwards of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. 
Uh, so this is real and this is, uh, this is now. Okay, so there will be some real tangible examples coming into the public markets maybe in the next two, three years, which people can really observe and unpack. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, I mean, it's been, Scott, today's been brilliant. I mean, we could probably uh, go on for ages, but, but one final question. So it looks like you're working at this fascinating intersection of longevity, uh, space and smart cities. But when you look at these companies and the great entrepreneurs that you partner with, in terms of an R&D process, so StageGate or Agile StageGate is typically a really popular methodology and seems to work well for a number of years. Are you actually seeing big changes in actually the innovation process itself with the types of organizations you partner with? And do you see some of those new processes really really scaling in the market is there is there anything different from an r&d execution standpoint that you've observed with the types of organizations you work with yeah i think on the biotech and life sciences side what i would say is uh, there are specific companies that we're working with that are fundamentally challenging the you know the 510k and the fda gates uh, for instance uh, most uh, i think um, you know realize the potential on the biotech side and even the pharma side uh, from an FDA. But, you know, these to support the, the various FDA stages and the clinical trials, uh, they tend to be incredibly cost prohibitive. So we're starting to see um, startups and solutions that are looking to really have better precision, better clinical grade upfront so that you can actually start to really have a lot of confidence early on. And what it ends up doing is you, you you lower the cost structure of the different clinical uh, trials, uh, as well as the, the precision and, and, and expected results. And to that end, there's a lot of applications of ML and DL and other things that's being done to really hone the science um, to get that level of accuracy uh, so that we're not just simply hoping that once we get into larger s clinical trial, um, that it'll, it'll pass. Uh, but we'll know exactly all the potential, you know, issues that could come up even way before you start to embark on some of those later stage FDAs. So I think that's really where we're excited is you know, when you can start to, you know, um, um, take strip out the cost aspects, uh, then you're starting to really challenge the innovation paradigm. Interesting. So is what you're touching upon there connecting some of the data used in discovery and preclinical yes. to more the trial phase. So you're de-risking some of the failure and loss once you get to a trial. You're de-risking uh, before you get to even trial. That's right. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's fascinating. You mentioned that that's an area that we're closely working on here, here at Patsnap Life Sciences. And we're probably, we service probably close to, well, we have hundreds of clients are really trying to get their arms around that challenge. Um, and we think as a community, I think there'll be some big strides in the next two, three years on how machine learning can really de-risk that element before getting to trial. So so I'm really happy you mentioned that one. Um, what, what's your time horizon, in your opinion, on that specific? So early in that discovery and preclinical phase where you're doing analytics and a whole bunch of work before you even get to trial and, and making sure you're placing the right bet. Do you see that impact of ML improving that process, 
in the near term in the next year and a half to two years? Are you, are you seeing kind of r- really tangible proof points on that front? I think um, one to two years seems a little bit on the aggressive side, but I think uh, realistically five to 10 in terms of uh, tangible evidence, uh, I think so. And then, of course, um, you know, making sure that the regulatory side is going to then respond to the advancements. And I think one of the frustrations that we're he- hearing from our startup co-founders is the policy and the legislative side keeping up with the capability and the advancement, the speed of things. Uh, so, so whether that's you know FDA, whether that's uh, on the food safety side, there's a lot of interesting things. Um, but I do think that is closer than we think. Well, well, Scott, on on that exciting note, thank you so much for an enthralling uh, episode today. It's been amazing learning about your story, your personal context, and, and the amazing things you're doing with, with with your current fund. But just for our our listeners, where can people find you if people want to follow up and, and get in touch or or learn about what you're focusing on uh, over to you now for any kind of links or any websites where people can, can get in touch. Uh, probably the central place is scottamix.com. That's scott, S-C-O-T-T-A-M-Y-X.com. And from there, you can also access Astro Perkins. Brilliant. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time today and uh, all the best with your work. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Ray. Thank you to this week's guest, Scott Amex, for chatting with us about the role of today's CEO as a necessary proponent of innovation and the trickle-down effect it has on long-term company performance. If you want to learn more about how to stimulate an impact discussion around innovation within your company, you should download our free ebook, The Connected Innovation Intelligence Blueprint. That explores the importance of establishing a connected view of your innovation data sources across your organization. Now you can download this free copy of the ebook today when you visit patsnap.com forward slash tag forward slash ebook. Again, that is patsnap.com forward slash tag forward slash ebook. Until next time, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.